This is an ABC podcast. Hi, Mike Led with you again for the History Lesson and the final program in our trilogy based on the lives of World War II detainees in Loveday Camp in South Australia's Riverland. The largest internment camp in Australia, Loveday was a huge prison farm where 5,000 Italian, German and Japanese civilians, designated as enemy aliens, spent the war years. So far we've heard about a German, Oscar Speck, and an Italian, Francesco Fantin, now it's time for the story of a Japanese internee, Miyakatsu Koike. In some ways, Koike is the odd one out in this series. Not heroic like Speck or tragic like Fantin. Instead, he was a mild-mannered bank official. He was a company man and he worked in the office. Just reminds me of my own father. Uh, Very royal, patriotic, and everything is very official. And yet Mr Koike intrigues me. A gentleman in brutal times. He's a man of great tolerance and forbearance. He was a peacemaker, and he is a man of great humanity. Plus, he left us a diary. Although I'm inexperienced as a writer, I shall attempt to write an intimate camp diary. I hope that it will help children to understand the misery caused by the war and the importance of peace. Koike's diary is a simple but at times poignant record of his years behind the wire at Loveday, and an English translation of the diary has just been published by Wakefield Press. The title of his diary is called Yokuryu Nikki, that literally means internment diary. And he's got a subtitle which is very symbolic. Yonenkan no akafuku seikatsu. Four years in red coat. They had to wear that red uniform when they were outside of the camp. But inside, they can wear their own clothes. Historian Yuriko Nagata. So how did a Japanese bank official end up in the South Australian Riverland in World War II? Mr Koike was an employee of the Yokohama Specie Bank. He was sent to the Surabaya branch, uh, Surabaya in the Dutch East Indies. That was 1935. After a three-week voyage, I finally arrived in Surabaya. From that time, I spent a little over six years in that land of eternal summer. His diary tells us that he had a good time because it was like a tropical holiday for him. In 
But in 1941, as the Japanese forces swept down through Southeast Asia, the holiday came to an end. Koike was instructed to close the bank in Surabaya and prepare to be repatriated. We raced against the clock to prepare the settlement of our accounts. Mr. Sakurai told me that the repatriation ship that we were expecting might not come due to the tense situation. Historian Peter Monteith. He's someone who's imbued with a strong sense of duty, and his duty is to look after the interests of his bank. But he's also keeping another eye on the military situation and following that as closely as he can, and with every day becoming more fearful that that, that they're going to be trapped, and and that's exactly what happens to him. When uh, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, he was arrested as an enemy subject by the Dutch authorities. Fumiko, his wife, had been already repatriated back to Japan, so she was not interned. Koiki was sent to Sumowono detention camp, then on to Australia. I was transported on the Kramer, which was referred to as a hell ship. We had absolutely no idea where we were being transported to. At first, most of us thought that we were sailing on the Indian Ocean, judging by the ocean's well. Because the portholes were all covered by iron plates, we could just see the surface of the sea through tiny chinks. At the entrance to the hold, a machine gun was pointing its ominous muzzle at us through wire netting. The ship Kramer was manned by Dutch authorities and their treatment was unfortunately very bad and the supply of uh, food was scarce and no medicine, no milk for babies. So a lot of people suffered from the uh, illness and several people died. The 20th of January 1942. Today, the weather was rough again. The body of Mr. Weather was buried at sea at 10.30 in the morning. We had a moment of silence for him. We repeatedly requested the army authority for treatment for sick people, but in vain. The fate of all human beings, let alone internees, it's such that no one is guaranteed whether he will be alive tomorrow or not. As internees, we knew nothing of our fate. We had to endure any hardship and wait for the day of our release. Finally, the ship arrived in Port Adelaide. An Australian officer came onto the ship, guided by a Dutch East Indian soldier, and looked around the hold. He asked whether we had been sick, and then he said to us, Sumimasen deshita. We apologize for this, influent Japanese. Unlike the Dutch East Indian soldiers, 
His manner was so gentle that we simply admired him. Remember, these were civilian detainees, not soldiers, and the horrors of the Japanese army's treatment of prisoners were not yet widely known. There's a, a kind of openness and generosity, it seems, at that relatively early point. Of course, by the end of the war, Australian attitudes towards Japanese people had, had hardened considerably. The internees were put on a train and sent to Loveday Camp, near the Murray River, about 230 kilometres northeast of Adelaide. The scenery surrounding us, which was emerging from the dim light of dawn, was an endless vineyard with only a few houses. And that's pretty much what it still looks like today. We're walking around the remains of the old Loveday camp with local historian Rosemary Gower. We're currently going through the middle of Camp 14. On our right-hand side, this is where the Japanese internees were, and up in the far corner was where they had the, the beautiful sunken garden. And we'll be going right through the middle. We'll see a cell block up here. There was another one back behind us. Escorted on both sides by guards, we marched quietly along a road. As our line stretched for nearly 200 metres, and we wore such shabby clothing, we must have looked a sorry sight. The entrance to the camp was surrounded by wire and looked like a cage. This whole operation was done in Australian way. They opened and shut the front and back gates and counted in their needs as if counting sheep. After a good meal and his first hot shower for a month, Koike settled down into camp life. He accepted his life in the uh, internment camp. He's trying to uh, make the best out of the worst situation. Far from our homeland, we had to live in a foreign country in the southern hemisphere. Moreover, we have to live the dreary life of an all-male group. I thought that it was important to get used to communal life. Civilian internees weren't forced to work, but they could if they wanted to. A shilling a day was the going rate. Loveday was self-sustaining, with its own poultry farm, piggery and vegetable gardens. There were also crops of opium poppies and pyrethrum daisies. Some of the Japanese loyalists didn't want to work as they felt their labour was helping the Allied war effort. The opium poppies were used to make morphine and the pyrethrum produced insecticide to help Australian soldiers fighting in the tropics. Apart from the work, the internees could also take part in calisthenics, language classes and handicrafts. Well, they have to kill a lot of time, so any sort of like activities were encouraged rather than discouraged. Cultural historian Tetsukumura. They played a lot of sport, sumo and baseball, even cricket. Also, they were encouraged to make some artworks and craftworks. In South Australia, there were chunk of um, native woods available for like carving. Quite a few carving objects were made in Labday. I've seen a lot of like naked women. 
<laughs> and uh, that's sort of understandable because um, in Labda, it was like a male camp. So they were hungry for women. <laughs> they got horny. In case of Mr. Koike, because he was businessman, his skills were used in the uh, administration. So he worked in the internee committee office as secretary. He is someone who is a pillar of the Japanese community and he was involved in organising Japanese language classes. Japanese cultural ceremonies were also allowed in the camp. The 29th of April 1942, a ceremony to mark the emperor's birthday was held. We sang the national anthem Kimigayo and the song to honour the emperor. The authorities even encouraged the Japanese to build their own shrines and a traditional water garden using water piped from the Murray River. There are two purposes. One is just making it and being engaged in a project and also for their spiritual purposes. And it had a little creek running through it and they had a lantern and shrubs and things. It was really quite beautiful. Many years later, I found where it was. But unfortunately, since then, it's on private property now and it's all been dug up. It wasn't all sweetness and light, though. The internment camp was surrounded by coils of barbed wire, and floodlights were positioned at several points. We were warned that if we came too close to the barbed wire, a guard in the lookout post would fire the machine gun. The Japanese were allowed out of Love Day to work, chopping down river red gums and sawing them into blocks to fire the irrigation steam pumps. Local fruit grower Ian Schober is taking us upriver to find the remains of one of the woodcutting camps. I wonder why they chose this spot. Lots yeah. of wood. <laughs> Must have felt a long way from anywhere. Yeah, they didn't have fences, did they? <laughs> Where are you going to escape to? If you had a boat, you might get somewhere. So tell us where we are, Ian. We're at Woolenock. The internment camp. Yeah, there's, there's paths everywhere. Yes. Yeah, they're clearly laid stones, aren't they? This is your sawmill. And somewhere in this forest, there's supposed to be an old cricket pitch where the Australian soldiers introduced the game to the Japanese. Can you imagine? The yelling and the laughing yeah. and the... <laughs> I've never seen a professional cricket player that's Japanese. <laughs> look, there you go. 22 yards, cricket pitch. Yeah, look at this. It's even got the stump. It's got the stump holders. We found that. <laughs> 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 
Back in Love Day, news of the war filtered through to Koike. News. The Japanese army landed at Lei in New Guinea. Moresby was bombed. It was time for lights out. However, the moonlight was so bright that I could not go to sleep. I could not help thinking of my home country, and I sincerely wished that I would be free to go home soon. On some days, Koike's diary consists of no more than the single line jottings of intense boredom. The 4th of May, 1942. Fine. I spent all day in the tent, playing cards. 14th of April, a clear sky. 30th of June, the distribution of underwear. 7th of July, I weighed 59 kilos. An exchange of Japanese and Allied prisoners occurred, but Koike was not selected. His diary is stoic about it. The 29th of July 1942, of those who were summoned, 240 people were officially informed that they could return home. Unfortunately, Mr. Sasamura and I were the only two from the Okama Specie Bank who were not selected. He should have been on the list. There was a lot of confusion about who's who. The names were wrongly spelt, so they missed out. After that day, I was forced to live a dreary life here in the camp for another three and a half years. Over those years, Koike's diary continues to detail the repetitions of life in detention and the coming and going of the seasons, with just a few hints of the war. The 9th of October 1944, I received a wire from the Yokohama Specie Bank. Your family members are all well. We pray for your health. We continue to do our best to achieve your earliest return home. But they were hiding the truth from him. In fact, both his father and his son had died, and Japan was now being bombed. It's the family's compassionate consideration because Mr. Koike was the only one away from home and didn't want to make him sad. Finally, news came of the end of the war. The 14th of August 1945, when the roll call was made in the morning, the commander of the camp confided to the compound leader that he had heard radio news about the surrender of Japan. As the days passed by, so-called Kachigumi emerged, who could not accept Japan's defeat and stubbornly believed in Japan's victory in the war. He was a peacemaker there. He exercised those diplomatic skills, I think, also with those who didn't want to accept that the war had ended. But he's the realist and recognises a a need to leave the war behind and to commence afresh, even though he also recognises that in returning to Japan, 
there will be huge challenges to confront. He and the other Japanese detainees were finally able to leave Love Day in February of 1946. On the repatriation boat home, Koike gave wise counsel to a young fighter pilot who was mortally ashamed to be returning in defeat. I told him that the attitude towards prisoner of war would be different from that in the past. Furthermore, I told him that I would explain the situation to his parents if need be, and I would ask his parents to celebrate his safe return home. At last, Koiki arrived back in Japan. The 13th of March 1946, at dawn, the ship dropped anchor off the coast near Uraga. He looked forward most of all to meeting his wife again, and that at least uh, occurred successfully. But by the same token, his father had died in the meantime. He discovered that his child had perished, and he found that Japan was totally devastated. This was not just because of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but you know because of the intensive bombing of many parts of Japan. Um, this was a Japan that was a kind of a wasteland and coping psychologically with, with the reality of defeat. Many children looked dispirited. I became very aware of the shortage of food. After reuniting with his wife in Tokyo, they caught the night train together back to their home in Nagoya. Almost 11 years had passed since I left Japan. I was indeed an unfilial son who had returned home not knowing my own father's death. The train was heading due west in the darkness. On the way, I was pleased to see Mount Fuji, as beautiful as ever, greeting me, a poor, repatriated person. Koike went back to his same job in the bank. His Love Day internment diary, written on little pieces of paper, lay dormant in his desk drawer until he retired. And his son knew that he had all these pieces of paper. And he said, well, Dad, why don't you uh, put together into a book form or something? And that probably a trigger for him. Mr Koike's diary is one of the first told by overseas internees. This diary is a very important historical document. 
Finally, to all the people who sadly died in the remote land of southern Australia, I would like to tell you that our motherland recovered quickly from defeat and became the second strongest economic power in the world. Please watch over the progress of our motherland and rest in peace. At age of 82, the author, Miyakatsu Koike. at the age of uh, 93 from a heart attack. His wife, Fumiko, died during his funeral. So they're both buried in uh, Mr. Koike's uh, birthplace in Gifu Prefecture. Love Day was closed in 1946. After the war, the internees were released back into the community or sent back overseas. The buildings were sold off. The mess huts were transported all around South Australia. The only thing that's left there is the general headquarters and that's in the care and control of the um, Berry Barmer Council. And uh, this is the Love Day Camp headquarters in the old hall. where my grandfather did the peace service in 1945. Oh, blimey. Very derelict now. Just seems to be... Home for pigeons. Jeez. Looks like they fall through the floor here. Here's the main hall, and uh, covered in pigeon crap, and there's the stage. This is where dances were held and services functioned. Just the chairs at the side of the wall. Eternally waiting for the next dance. The history of Love Day reminds us of the impact on people's lives of prolonged detention. People who were detained for no fault of their own, they'd committed no crime, they hadn't been through any kind of legal process. 
They just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. For civilian internees, as for people in offshore detention, they find themselves in a situation where they don't know when it's all going to come to an end. You know, in some cases, for very long periods, uh, Koike was behind barbed wire in, in Love Day for about four years. And for a person at any stage of their life, that's an essential injustice. And that was the final episode of the Love Day Trilogy. Excerpts from Mr Koike's diary were read by Tetsukimura. Sound engineering and original music was by Tom Henry. My undying gratitude to that man. The series was produced by me, Mike Ladd, and this is my farewell after nearly 40 years at the ABC. Thanks to all the writers, actors, musicians and fellow producers I've had the privilege to work with, and thanks to you for listening. Kirsty Melville will be back next time for more audio adventures on the History Listen. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.